Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. John chapter 9, it can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,665. John chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I wash and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally they turned again to the blind man What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Let's the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. I was struck by a a story that I recently uh, read, and then I uh, heard a video testimony of this young lady. Uh, She was part of a church that many of you are probably familiar with. It's called Bethel. It's in Redding, California, and it's known for its heretical, charismatic, and prosperity gospel kind of teaching. And uh, they have a ministry school there. It's called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, where they teach young kids to go around town and uh, praying for people to be healed and and so on and so forth. Um, I've seen videos of these uh, worship services. Some of them are often quite frightening and scary. Um, But the interesting thing to me is this young woman watched a documentary called 
the American gospel, which basically refutes all these prosperity gospel, uh, charismatic, word of faith kinds of teachings. And she's a student at this Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And she becomes convicted by watching this uh, documentary that what's being taught at this church that she uh, attends, that she's a member of, what's being taught in this school that she's a student in is all false and is deceiving so many people. And so uh, she doesn't get out of school. She begins to proclaim the true gospel from the context of this supernatural ministry school. And she begins to teach the true and living and faithful gospel that is opposed to this word of faith, prosperity gospel, um, um, false charismatic, false spirit stuff. Um, and what do you think happened to her next? Any guesses? She got kicked out, right? Um, and what struck me about that story is it's very much so what we're looking at this morning. And what's frightening about something like that is that when we see a true spirit-born faith come into the face of opposition, uh, particularly in church context or religious context, we see a, a, a horrible expression of what is often called spiritual abuse. Now, I looked up a definition of spiritual abuse uh, recently, and it says spiritual abuse happens... When a spiritual authority, such as a cult leader or abusive pastor, seeks to control individuals and ensure obedience, a spiritually abusive group might claim that they are God's sole channel of communication and that they alone can rightly interpret God's word. They might claim that salvation depends upon belonging to their church and that, since God speaks through them alone, there can be no further discussion on what the leaders say. Now tell me if that does not sound like the Pharisees. This man who has been born blind has the privilege of seeing for the very first time with his new eyes the ugliness, the nastiness, the sickening spiritual abuse at the hands of his so-called pastors. But it gives us an opportunity to realize a truth that is profound. And that is that the sincerity of faith is revealed in the face of opposition. The sincerity of faith is revealed in the face of opposition. We're going to look at our passage this morning in three parts. First, we're going to talk about the prophet. Or that is the man's profession, uh, confession that he believes that Jesus is a prophet. Second, we're going to look at the parents, uh, the, the Pharisees interrogating the parents. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the proselyte. Now, I know that's an old-fashioned word, but I had to go with that alliteration. Proselyte means convert or somebody who's come to faith, okay? And that means we're going to look specifically at that man's final testimony, okay? So let's look at the prophet, this covers verses 13 through 17 of our passage this morning. Uh, the idea behind the community bringing this man to the Pharisees is simple. This is not some sort of uh, uh, mob and they want to get this man caught. What the reality going on here is that if a miracle has been performed, it must be confirmed or ruled on by the experts. 
And so these neighbors who realized that this was the man that they knew who was born blind, and he's now going around seeing, uh, how can we get a determination on this? How can we see what's really happened here? Well, the first place that you go for spiritual advice is your pastors, and that's where they go. They go to the Pharisees of this uh, local area. And verse 14 continues, and we're informed here that John tells us the miracle was performed on the Sabbath. Now, this should immediately draw John's readers of his gospel to make a comparison between what's going on right here in John chapter 9 and what's previously taken place in chapter 5 with the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. If you remember that, that was a healing that also occurred on the Sabbath. The man, uh, Jesus told the man to carry his mat. The man got in trouble for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And an argument ensued. I don't know that word. An argument continued from, between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, concerning his identity and who he was. And there Jesus proclaimed those wonderful words. Uh, if you believe in Moses, you believe in me because he wrote of me. But why did John leave this detail for here instead of saying earlier when Jesus healed him that it was on the Sabbath? Because the Pharisees' case against Christ is going to be depending on them proving that he broke the Sabbath uh, by what they're going to call, or what they called at that time, kneading dough. There was a long list of tons of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Um, they weren't satisfied with God saying, keep the Sabbath holy, uh, don't make any of your servants work. They needed to add to that list. And so one of the things on this list is that you can't knead dough. And they're going to say, because Jesus made mud. He was kneading dough. And it could very well be that the reason Jesus made the mud and put it on the man's eyes was so that this conflict could ensure. Oh, so, verse 15 and 16, they begin to build their case. They interrogate the man, but concern for him and joy for this newfound ability that he has to see is lost on these spiritual leaders. I mean, can you imagine that? You encounter someone who said, I was born blind, and now I can see. And the first thing that they're doing is saying, how did this happen? Who is this guy? There's no joy for the man. There's, he's simply a pawn for them, used and abused as an attempt to discredit Christ. Ra actually, rather, his new condition is a frustrating issue to them that could cause more to follow Christ. And that's not what they want. In that sense, they would wish that he would have stayed blind, just as they're going to wish that Lazarus would have never came out of the grave later on in this gospel. The Pharisees get the story from the man. Then they deliberate. Some said, this can't be a legitimate miracle because this man, by the way, they're never going to mention Jesus' names. They're always going to use this fellow or this man derogatory. This man doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's a sinner. And only people who are not sinners, only righteous, can do miracles. But others said, a sinner can't do miraculous signs. And what are we looking at here? We're looking at a man who was born blind who's not blind anymore. So once again, we see that Christ brings division. And this division has to do in part with the marks of a true prophet described in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where we're told that we must rule 
on who is a true prophet. And, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're told uh, those who are false prophets, the penalty is death. But it also has a lot to do with the decision Christ is casting upon this group. The unique character of this narrative is that Christ takes a back seat. He allows the expression of faith and truth to come from this man who was born blind rather than defending himself as he did in John chapter 5. And Christ's action of healing the, the man born blind on the Sabbath brings before the, the Pharisees a conundrum. He's causing a division because as the light of the world, he's revealing the hearts of men, their inconsistencies. At this crossroad, these Pharisees really have no way out except repentance or further rejection. What do I mean by that? Well, on one side, they must admit that their man-made Sabbath rules are adding to the Word of God and, in fact, not bringing them into right relationship with God, but rather are themselves a rejection of God for their own righteousness. And on the other side, this man was born blind and has been healed. If they accept the legitimacy of this miracle, they must confess that Jesus is no mere man, not a sinner, nor simply a prophet, but the Christ. They're being faced in the eyes of this man who was born blind with the reality of their own blindness. This encounter is nothing but judgment being heaped on these hard-hearted legalists, these spiritual abusers, these pastors filled with their own prideful arrogance who with their power manipulate and abuse those under them. But verse 17, we see a continuation of this story. And that is that they turn to ask for the man's opinion. Maybe to see if his answer could resolve their disagreement and tension. Maybe the man could speak poorly of Jesus or confess that he's really just making this story up. And it would resolve this conundrum and their moral dilemma. I mean, it's obvious that they don't believe his initial testimony. Their question of him, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Would better be translated as, what do you say about him? That he has opened your eyes. In other words, are you willing to admit that this Sabbath breaker healed you? Are you going to keep that as your testimony? But this man will not buck. You see... John chapter 9 shows a great progression of this man's boldness and his faith. The one he said, the man they call Jesus, now he has another word for him to describe him. See, there's a division among the Pharisees. And some among them said, this man is not from God. But this blind man who's been healed, his response is, he is a prophet. He is from God. He's had an encounter with the living Christ, and no one can take that from him. His seeing eyes are proof that this man, Jesus, the one they call Jesus, he's been sent from God, and he's doing the will and the work of God. 
This is proof that the sincerity of faith is revealed in the face of opposition. It's proof that true believers cannot stand falsehood or legalism of those who use the law to feed their own religious arrogance. And he functions as an example of what true faith does under pressure. You see, when we face the pressures and the push from this world to conform to its image and to keep our mouth closed about our prophet, our priest, our king, we can be assured that if we have had an encounter with the living Christ, if we were once blind but now can see, he will give us the strength by his spirit to lift our voices with gentle boldness to proclaim with this blind man that we can now see and we know that this Jesus is from God. He does the work of God. The true believers cannot stand spiritual abuse. Why is it that when we hear of pastors in the church doing things that are unspeakable, that we are sickened inside because we know that it is pastors that are most above all to be trusted, to be respected, and to care for those who are under them. And so, this man He's not going to take it. But what about his parents? What about his parents? Having been faced with the reality of their own unbelief, these Pharisees seek another way out. They're driven deeper into their dark hearts. They refuse this man's testimony, so they call for his parents to verify this claim. Surely they can put to rest this issue of Jesus' identity by declaring that this man, their son, was not born blind, or that he's not their son at all, and that Jesus is a charlatan, not to be trusted. These abusive religious leaders are simply looking for a validation of what they've already decided. They are not looking for the truth. They are trying to threaten and manipulate these interrogations to their own benefit. This is not the work of God under scrutiny, because they've already decided that this is not the work of God. And their next victims are this man's parents. They ask, is this your son? Was he really born blind? How can he see now? And fearing the retribution that might come upon them for giving the wrong answer, these parents walk the path of least resistance. He's our son. He was born blind. But how he can see now and who did it? No, no, uh, uh, not going to touch that. Mm-mm, not going to touch that. And you see, this is often the path that we are tempted to take, is it not? The path of least resistance. Whatever offends the most amount of people, the least. In our politically correct world and culture, possibly saying something that could offend another person, especially one who's in power and who could do something about that and could do something to your own life and to cause you an issue. That's the last thing that we want to do. People, we're living in a day and age where refusing to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding ceremony gets you put before the Supreme Court. 
It's a very simple act. Saying, I'm not going to participate in something that God does not say is good. Doesn't seem like much. I'm not going to take photographs at a wedding that I do not believe is a wedding. And does not honor God. My question to you is, as this world grows increasingly and increasingly more angry and volatile towards the truth of Christ, are we going to take the path of least resistance? Or are we going to say, now is the time for gentle boldness? Now is the time to say no. Abortion is wrong and it must stop. We cannot keep killing our children. Is it time for that gentle boldness that says, I know you may disagree with me, but I believe that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ and that you are in fact standing on my worldview to make sense of anything such as love or beauty, truth. And in love, to speak the truth of who Christ is. That the world may come to see that forgiveness of sins and repentance is to be preached in all the world. And that Christ is coming again. Hey, but the parents, they take here the path of least resistance. But nonetheless, the healing has been confirmed. But they differ the how. They defer the how and the who back to their son, whom they say is old enough to answer for himself. But what we do know now at this time is that yes, it is their son. And yes, he was born blind. So this is a miracle. But why exactly did they take the path of least resistance? Because, John tells us, they fear these spiritual abusers and the threats they've already breathed out about Christ and his followers. And I think of that young lady in that false church who became convicted of the true gospel. What would have been different if she chose the path of least resistance? What would have been different if she chose to be quiet and maybe not speak up and speak out for those who are being spiritually abused among her. I would have never seen her testimony. I would have never been influenced and struck by her words. We wouldn't hear her story. We wouldn't know that God had saved this woman and opened her eyes to the truth of the gospel and that she, with boldness, wanted to see her friends and her family that's a part of this church come to the truth of who Christ really is and the wonderful rest and peace that is found in the gospel. We would have never seen that. She took the path of least resistance. If she feared her spiritual abusers, They said anybody who proclaims that Jesus is the Christ is going to be cast out. 
They didn't testify to have any knowledge of Jesus, these parents. Because these religious leaders, acting more like gang leaders, had already put the word out. Hey, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the anointed one of God, uh, let us know. We got a hit on him. We got a hit. But they are to be treated as one who has abandoned the faith and will be kicked out of the local assembly. It's a practice that's done in many Reformed churches called excommunication. To be treated as one who is not of the faith. Except it's being poorly practiced here. So in this moment, we really see the true heart of the Pharisee. These mob leaders, mobsters, they're not seeking to verify this miracle that they may believe in the one who has done it, that they may find the truth and and be able to come to Christ and say, you are the Messiah. They are seeking to find the Lord of the Sabbath, violating the Sabbath. Think of that. Think about that. They're seeking to find any way possible to disregard and undermine Christ. The sign, this miracle, the sign, John calls it a sign, was meant to point to him, yet they want to use the sign to find Christ guilty of sin and thereby disqualified as the Christ. Oh, Christ, you you healed a man that was born blind? Well, you did it on the Sabbath, so you're a false teacher. By the way, that's their definition of the Sabbath, not the true Sabbath. And everyone knows the word's gotten out. This is their goal. This is their end game. Don't mess with them. Mm -mm -mm. Don't mess with these spiritual abusers. They'll kick you out. And Jesus, as himself being the true Sabbath, has in the healing of this blind man proclaimed the rest and the liberation and the freedom that comes through him to all who are united to him by faith. Yet these religious leaders are seeking to use the Sabbath as a snare. To catch others in sin. And to abuse the lowly and the downtrodden with their power. And we must be careful that we never have the same attitude about the Sabbath. I heard once of a young lady who began going to a Reformed church in South Holland. I don't know which one. She was not a believer. The pastor was meeting with her. And teaching her, she was bringing her family to the church. And they were growing in the faith. And one day, on the Lord's Day, another member of this church was driving by. And he saw that this woman was out in the lawn, mowing her lawn on the Lord's Day. And he stopped his car and he got out. And he said, don't you know it's the Lord's Day? You shouldn't be doing this. And guess what? That pastor never saw that woman again. So we need to be careful that we do not have the same attitude concerning the Sabbath that these religious leaders are expressing here. Let's look finally at the proselyte, the convert, the believer. So the man then is brought back because the parents, they didn't provide these uh, Pharisees with the way out they were looking for. The pressure is going to have to be put on the man to recant his account. They're going to have to use all the powers of spiritual abuse to force this man to lie. And so they charge him solemnly to tell the truth. Isn't that funny? It's ironic, really. 
They know he's telling the truth concerning Christ. They know the truth concerning Christ. They are suppressing that truth. And here they are using God's holy name to charge this man to lie. Give glory to God. Now these same words are very similar words are words Joshua used to call Achan to confess his sin against God and Israel in Joshua 7.19. You remember Achan, the one that stole the things from Jericho, and then they lost a battle, and then there was a whole series of events that occurred that revealed that Achan was the one who had done so, and the result of that was that Achan and his whole family and everything in his household was stoned to death. But the but it's, you get the, the idea here. Joshua used it with Achan to say, reveal the falsehood, the falseness that you're hiding. And here they are assuming the same thing about this man. They're accusing him of falsehood, just as Joshua was of Achan. We know this man is a sinner, they say. In other words, as wonderful spiritual abusers. You better not say that he isn't. You better not say that he isn't or else. You have to confirm our presupposition. We have already decided. You aren't going to change our mind, but you will get in trouble if you don't change yours. Does that not sound like spiritual abuse to you? And I pain for any of you if you've ever experienced that. That manipulation from those who are meant to be watching over you and caring for you in gentleness with a servant's heart. It's spiritual abuse at the hands of those who were given the responsibility to care and nurture. It's sickening. But the confidence... And the wonder that we have in this moment is that these spiritual abusers don't get the last word. This man is not going to back down. He's had an encounter with the living Christ and that cannot be taken from him. The sincerity of his faith is being revealed in the face of opposition. The Jews know that Jesus is a sinner. This man knows something too. That I was blind, but now I see. That's what he knows, and he's saying, these rogue shepherds must reckon with that. You cannot look into my eyes and continue to say what you are saying about Jesus. Look, I was born blind. Look at me. Look at these eyes. They see. And we must, we must Work by the grace of God to be able to have the same testimony that others could come to us and say, look, look, look at my life. Look how it's changed. Look what Christ has done for me. You cannot say that Christ is not who he is. Look at my life. By the grace of God, I've been changed. They must gaze into the eyes that once were blind and see the truth of who Christ is. But we know it. We've seen it over and over again in John's gospel. Jesus himself has said, you are the children of the devil. They will not do it. They refuse to have this man rule over them. 
and they will not have it. So at a loss, these Jews have no recourse, but they go back to the beginning to have the man go through the facts once more. Maybe, maybe in this way they could, they could trip him up. Maybe they could get him to contradict his testimony in some way. But now this man's on the offensive. He's not in the defensive position. He sees straight through what they're doing, and he says this wonderful thing. Oh, you, you don't want to come become his disciples too, do you? The question expects a negative answer. The man is not being naive here. He's not seeing the hatred in the Pharisees' faces and saying, oh, maybe they want to become his disciples. Oh, it's just going right over my head. No, he's being ironic. He knows that they aren't interested. He's poking the bear. That's what he's doing. He's become emboldened by their unwillingness to embrace the truth that Jesus is really who he says he is. But this angers the Jews who show their true hearts as they begin to toss insults at this man. This man, one of the first things he has the privilege of seeing are his pastors spewing hatred at him. Think about that. These are some of the first things that he's seen with his new eyes. And he had every right to turn and run away. To avoid this encounter, he had every reason to cave under the pressure. But he didn't. Because the sincerity of our faith is revealed in the face of opposition. The Pharisees proclaimed, we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but to this man, we don't even know where he's from. And it's funny that they trust Moses, yet despise the one whom Moses wrote of. If you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me. You see, they have made Moses the ultimate mediator. Not understanding that Moses himself pointed beyond him to a perfect and to a greater mediator. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us about this. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The Pharisees have made Moses the ultimate, and they have become blind to the one who is greater than Moses, Jesus. And so they seek to uh, throw some shade on Christ's origin, so as to deny him the authority to speak on behalf of God. And it's funny because earlier the Pharisees said, we know where he's from, and you're not supposed to know where the Messiah is from, so he's not the Messiah. So they have contradicting accounts here. But to Christ, this form of argumentation that we don't know where he's from only reveals that these Jews remain dead in their sins. For Christ has said, you don't know where I'm from. For I'm from above. And unless one is born from above, born again, 
They cannot see the kingdom of God. And these last few verses, 30 to 34, it's the definitive witness of this man. It's a definitive witness statement that he gives. He's no longer going to allow the work of God to be scrutinized by these spiritual abusers. He shall declare the truth of the matter to these truly blind leaders. The Pharisees said, we know he is a sinner. And so the man responds with, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. The once blind man shows that he can truly see. Jesus is no sinner. He's from God. How else could he open the eyes of a man born blind? Look at me. Can't you see? Jesus is a miracle worker who's doing the work of God, and I'm the living, breathing proof of that. You cannot deny it, and you will not get me to deny it, he says. And what can these Jews say now? Well, they surely are not going to be persuaded by this man. So they further express the abuse of their authority by saying, this man can't be trusted since he was born blind. In other words, he's steeped in sin at birth. This brings us all the way around to the beginning, doesn't it? Because in this statement, they reveal that they hold the very same position as uh, as Jesus' disciples did concerning sin and suffering. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember, Christ corrected their position. He was neither. This man was born this way that the glory of God, the works of God might be displayed in him. Therefore, they proclaim that this wretched sinner will not lecture them. And what this man's parents feared now falls upon him. He's been excommunicated. They throw him out. He's cast out from the local assembly to be seen as one who had abandoned the faith of Moses For Jesus to no longer be known as a true Israelite, for he had found the true Israel in Christ. And this brings us all the way back to the beginning, because remember, I told you that young lady's testimony concerning this false church. She proclaimed the truth of who Christ is and the true gospel, and she was thrown out of that church and that school. Because a true believer's Sincerity of faith is expressed in the face of opposition. And if that means that you're tossed out by spiritual abusers who cannot control you, who cannot get you to say what they want you to say, who cannot make you change your mind, who cannot keep you and control every aspect of your life, then it means that the proclamation of Christ is one that is free. And that's what we must be striving for in this life. To have a testimony like this man who was born blind that no one can take from us because we've had a living encounter with Christ. And because the sincerity of our faith is proved in the face of opposition. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us and what you continue to do for us. May you strengthen us that we can have, in the face of opposition, whatever may come, a testimony like this man who was born blind, like the young lady from that church we talked about. And may we know, above all, that you are to be trusted and counted on. And we pray, Lord, for all those who are in this very moment 
being abused spiritually, controlled and manipulated, that you would give them freedom and grace and the truth of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.